I love wine regions that are undeniably authentic and that always over-deliver. For me, that sums up Paso Robles. In fact, the first time I got on a plane in over a year and a half was to visit Paso back in April. Paso Robles sits in the heart of California's Central Coast. It's a big wine region that has many diverse microclimates, and it allows for a stunning array of grapes to thrive. In short, Paso Robles has range. They aren't known for just one or two varietals or wines. They make interesting blends from Cabernet Sauvignon and other Bordeaux varietals, Syrah and Rhone-style wines, Zinfandel, Tempranillo, and they even make beautiful white wines. Side note for you guys, my number one wine of 2020 was a Zinfandel Tempranillo blend from Paso Robles. Just saying. I also love that it's made up of over 200 family-owned wineries. We're talking salt-of-the-earth people who put their heart and soul into their wines. Paso Robles is special, but now the word's getting out. You need to check it out and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. You can learn more at PasoWine.com. That's P-A-S-O Wine.com. Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a black wine guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey everybody, what's up? It's your boy MJ and welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is one of the most influential and widely read American voices on wine and food and managing editor of Resi. Please welcome acclaimed journalist and author, John Bonet. Hey. In John's 20 plus years as a journalist, he has been a senior contributing editor for Punch, spent nearly a decade as the wine editor and chief wine critic of the San Francisco Chronicle, where he co-edited its food and wine section and won not one but two James Beard Awards and numerous other accolades. He is also the author of The New California Wine and The New Wine Rules and is currently finishing his next book, The New French Wine. Welcome, John. Thank you so much. Um, tell us about the wines we're going to be drinking tonight. Sure. Um, my favorite part. So uh, two wines. Uh, the first one, uh, which you're tasting right now, uh, and by tasting, I mean drinking. Yes. Um, is uh, Muscadet. Uh, and this is um, Domaine de la Pepiere, uh, uh, which is one of the best uh, biodynamic properties in Muscadet, and I think really one of the pioneers uh, in the quality revolution that's going on there. Uh, this is their 2017 uh, Monier Saint Fiacre. Uh, which is one of the 10 crews that have been approved in Beaujolais. So exactly, excuse me, in Muscadet. So exactly like in Beaujolais, where there's 10 crews, there's now 10 crews in Muscadet. Um, they were done a little bit more precisely, much more around the geology. And uh, they are um, they are all very specific in terms of their soil type. Um, they're all long aged. This receives three years of aging on lees before mm. it's released. So I think this is actually current release. Um, and to me, this is, you know, this is the step after white burgundy. This is, this is the next great white wine. Oh, wow. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. And then the second is, um, uh, 2018 Planquette, uh, 
Um, this is Bordeaux. This is from the Medoc, actually. Um, guy named Didier Michaud, who was this was actually his last vintage. He sort of turned over the uh, the property to a young couple who were kind of continuing in organics and whatever. Tiny, tiny, maybe three hectares, uh, all the way down on the on the estuary, like near the mouth of the Atlantic. Um, and you know, I have a irrational obsession with small scale Bordeaux. I kind of, you know, got past my 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 Bordeaux hating phase <laughs> and realized that I, you know, I grew up with like drinking red Bordeaux. I love it and when you get past kind of all the, you know, like ridiculous douchey parts of Bordeaux, there's extraordinary extraordinary wine there. Uh it's still the biggest fine wine region in France and so you find these tiny little farms where they're producing super interesting wines. Mm, love it. I love that. <laughs> The douchey parts. It's uh, we'll get there's, there's there's no, no shortage in Bordeaux. <laughs> no, yet. I've read an article you talk about. Yeah, it's, it was so funny. Um, so let's start at the beginning. You are born and raised a New Yorker, uh, right? Grew up in the city and then Westchester, correct? Yeah, exactly. Okay, where in the city did you live, and how old were you when you moved out to Westchester? Uh, I was like, you know, sort of getting to elementary school when we moved. Um, I grew up on the Upper West Side. Um, it, you know, right by Central Park West, uh, literally across from the Hidden Planetarium for a few years. Mm. We could, like, wake up and watch all the floats from the Macy's uh, parade uh, preparing at, like, 4.30 in the morning. Um, the Upper West Side at that point was not the Upper West Side as it is now. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't quite as posh. Um, but, uh, yeah, and then, uh, and then we moved up to Westchester, and then I came back here for school. Yeah. What, did it start getting posh when uh, Lennon moved up there? Or would was, was what you, I mean, as a New Yorker, I mean, I it depends how you measure it. I'd say it started get, like, you know, uh, let's put a pin in like when the first Starbucks opened in '94, oh, okay. okay. uh, down the block from where I was living, like right after college. And at that point, it was like a big, like a big deal. New York was getting its first Starbucks, right? And right. Uh, you know, that was that was either the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning. <laughs> And that, you know, it's so funny, and that's a big deal because um, coffee wars, like they, they were coming into Duncan's territory. They were, they're, they were they're taking the East. They came to take the East. And chock full of nuts. Yeah. Back when that, like, yeah. I guess it still exists. Like you can still buy chock full of nuts coffee, but there were actual, like, coffee places uh, once upon a time. I don't know if I knew cho chock full of nuts had coffee shops. Yeah. Whoa. Now I'm, like, truly dating myself. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, I didn't grow up in the city, so I, 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 would, I would know where I would know that, you know. Um, and then you moved out to Westchester. Where'd you? Where'd your family relocate to Westchester? We moved to Pound Ridge, okay, um, which was definitely not as it is now. <laughs> um, it was. I mean, it was rural then, and um, but yeah, so we were there for a long time, um, and you know, it was the suburbs. Yeah. <laughs> It was like it was like Green Acres. Like she loved the city. Like that literally just to go <laughs> yeah. out to Westchester was like you're like in farmland. Yeah, you know? things I will not forgive my mother for. <laughs> so I read that your father left a career in finance in the early 1980s to start a fine foods shop, and I guess that was like in the Pine Ridge area, Pound Ridge area. Yeah. So he had a really interesting career. He, um, you know, he was. You know, a corporate executive um, went to Columbia Business School um, and was actually a vice president at Citibank. And for his, you know, 
midlife crisis, whatever it was. He had also trained as a chef, um, mm. and he had studied a lot of cooking sort of early on, and so he decided he was going to, you know, leave corporate America behind and go start a gourmet foods and catering business, um, which was interesting at the time. So, you know, he had um, he had two real competitors at that point uh, in sort of Westchester, you know, Greenwich, New Canaan, kind of Southern Connecticut. Uh, one was Abigail Kirsch, who's still, you know, a big deal caterer. And the other was this woman who was like kind of an up and comer named Martha Stewart. <laughs> Um, so she obviously, I think, nailed it a little bit better than he yeah. did. Uh, yeah, because there's not the uh, Bonet, uh, you know, dishes and <laughs> linens yeah, exactly. and <clears throat> TV empire. Yeah, and, things that think, and, you know, you know, like no, no hanging with Snoop. No, I was like no collab with <laughs> yeah. Snoop. You know, um, but uh, yeah, so it was, you know, and then eventually he went back and went back to finance. But um, but yeah, so it was it was an interesting environment to grow up in. Is that kind of where your uh, your real interest in food and wine began? Totally, yeah. yeah. And it's you know it's it's, it's tricky because everyone in this industry sort of like has their their aha moment, mm -hmm. and I don't. I don't have an aha moment. It was just like, it was just there. I mean, like, you know, I remember visiting Bordeaux when I was a kid. I remember visiting Cal like the Napa Valley and the Mandabi winery when I was a kid, but it wasn't like suddenly I woke up one day and this was it. And so like, I, you know, forgot all about it and went off and, you know, lived my life, drank lots of bad tequila um, <laughs> and, you know, didn't really get back into it until like I was living in Seattle and working for uh, for NBC mm. and uh, you know suddenly was like really getting interested in food and wine and you know was like hey boy maybe I could write about this since that's kind of what I do and you know suckered people in and have just been <laughs> made, made the mirage last now for like 17 years so Let's go back to the bad tequila. So, uh, tell me about your college years. You went to Columbia, right? I did. And and you did. And did you study journalism at the journalism school? Uh, I didn't. Um, I studied. Uh, I studied English and political science. Okay. Um, and spent most of my time, uh, you know, like uh, working at the radio station, doing news, um, the public radio station there, um, and uh, drinking a lot of forties because that's what you got up in Morningside Heights in the night. 90s yeah. um, and, um, you know, partaking of things that are now legal in New York. Yeah. Um, and there was, yeah, there was some bad tequila, um, regrettable bad tequila. Um, I'm pretty sure that I traded a Don Henley cassette. Wow. You just dated yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so, a cassette for um, our will, listeners yeah. <laughs> under the age of 30. Yeah. Uh, it's like a video. Oh, you know what yeah. videotape is either. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be breaking my walker yeah, out now. Know. So, you know. um, so I'm pretty sure I traded traded what you know that and probably other things for you know shots of tequila, <laughs> um, objects. Yes, barter. <laughs> yeah, it, we we didn't have Bitcoin. We had barter. <laughs> We had cassettes, yeah. mixtapes. The joyous, the joyous days where the internet <laughs> the mix, could, uh, yeah. yeah, the mixtape for the girl you like, or the mix, the the mix, the breakup mixtape to try and get her back. Um, <laughs> so you you said you worked at a radio station at Columbia. I did. Yeah. Now, uh, were was uh, Stretch and Bob Beetle still doing the hip hop show? At they the, totally were at the station there. Yeah. Yeah. So people don't realize like Columbia is is a is a major player. In the New York underground hip hop scene, yeah, yeah. Um, there was these guys. Uh, 
Stretch Armstrong, I can't remember his real name right now, who went to Columbia and then Bobito went to Wesleyan and they yep. they they were running this like that's how people like Nas everybody, everybody broke. Biggie, you broke on their show. You had to come on and freestyle. And it's this tiny and it's a tiny little room too, right? Yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> yes, it is. And then you hear the stories. Yeah. Like I watched like these documentaries, like Wu Tang, and everything. like everybody's coming in smoke, smoke. That it's all smell like smoke there. Which, but it's just very interesting that that that's a very powerful little radio station you worked at. Yeah. So what was your show about? Uh, I was the news director. So okay. Uh, so we did um, we did a half hour of news, sort of New York focused uh, every night. And then my 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 last year there, I actually sort of debuted their first like live talk radio show back okay. when. Along with explaining cassettes, once upon a time there was radio, <laughs> and people would be on it, and they would they would talk, and this was you know how you know how well how the country went to hell. Yeah, but, yeah, but before was, that, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I, we did we did sort of news and public affairs. Oh, very cool. So, um, so we we actually we earlier mentioned. So then you uh, was the first job out in Seattle for MSNBC. What was the the first job upon graduating? Uh, no, my first job. So so by that you know by the time I graduated, I'd have been doing radio you know and reporting for well, basically four years. We'd covered the Democratic National Convention live. We'd done all sorts of stuff. I'd worked for AP. I'd worked for Newsweek. So. Um, all of which was great. And then I uh, got out of school and I took a job uh, as a producer for a political consulting company. Oh. Um, which was an interesting six months or so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but basically, like, I would go to, you know, Alaska or Detroit or whatever and produce TV and radio ads. Oh, wow. Which is a strange job to have as a 21-year-old. That's very interesting. Um, I don't – I mean, because you majored in political science, so – but I also I remember when Obama his campaign is that common? Is a lot of young people though work on on campaigns for sure? Yeah. Who else will take no money? Oh, I was like, I was, that's what I was getting at. Why? Why is that? <laughs> yeah. So so after after that actually I did I like you know finished out that campaign season um, as a press secretary and issues director for a uh, campaign in the congressional campaign in Connecticut. Pretty much along those lines, like, you know, who's, you know, who's cheap enough that they'll work for this. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't know. And then, and, and then honestly, right after that, I like sort of, you know, fell haphazardly into doing internet work. And this was, again, you know, breaking out the cane. This was 1995. Yeah. So got in really, really early. Yeah, that's like, that's like real internet. Not 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 this super fast stuff you kids have now and day. Like like I'm let's talk about dial up. Yeah, I'm still like I didn't I didn't get my first I didn't get my first email address so like nice. I was like this isn't gonna last, and I had known about it for years. You know, because when I was in law school, they gave us an email address. I'm like I'm not using that shit. <laughs> I mean, I remember what you know the 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 horror was that AOL was going to open. Up its system so that its users could use a web browser, and everyone who was already doing internet stuff was like, "Here's the end of the internet." They're letting all the AOL people on. <laughs> like, li little did you know? Little like, did we know. But if you travel back in time and show them Instagram, you know, show them Facebook, and be like, "If you think it's bad now, right, right. you know." Yeah. No, it's made. It's meta now. Yeah. All right. I'm gonna have to hit you up, Zuck, for some sponsorship for that one. As long as you do it in the metaverse. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, rainbow dolphins sailing by, whatever, you know. Oh, yeah, exactly. Flying toaster screensavers, yeah. all that shit. You guys don't know nothing about laptops weighed 15 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So um, 
So how'd you land as the lifestyle editor and wine columnist at uh, MSBC, MSNBC? So, um, so I, like I said, I was doing internet stuff. I was actually uh, employee number 12 at the first internet ad, ad agency. Uh, called agency.com now long gone and from there I like but I was like missing journalism a lot and so I took a job with News Corporation um, specifically at that point it was TV Guide and then did some other stuff and um, then went to Court TV where I was managing editor and like relaunched their website what year was that? that was 97 okay so you missed the OJ trial I missed it well <laughs> Uh, I got the OJ trial. No, I got the. I didn't get the OJ trial. Court TV. I got like the aftermath. Yeah. Um. But you know. But at that point, Johnny Cochran had a show. Um. <laughs> and um. So it that was fun. And then from there, uh, you know, I got hired at, at uh, MSNBC. I'm feeling uh, old. I said court. You said court TV. Like I know. I remember it vividly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Before they started playing Homicide. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but um, yeah, and then at MSNBC for a long time. So when I got there, I wasn't doing food and wine. I was okay. doing, um, you know, sort of general news. And then I was like the liaison between the NBC network desk and the dot-com side. Uh, and then just took a bunch of different jobs, was sort of the equivalent of the page one editor, um, covered, you know, the environment, covered politics, covered, I was a business reporter, I covered the airline industry for a couple of years. And the course of that, like I said, I was, you know, getting really interested in food and wine and, you know, kept doing more stories like that and then sort of created this strange beat uh, that was the business and science of food and wine. And that's when I started the wine column. Um, you know, er er everyone who ever gets a wine column has to figure out some way to sucker their editor. That's what um, and, uh, Eric Asimov said. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he had to like backdoor yeah, exactly. into it. I got yeah. an idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, and then I did, well, I did that for a while and then they like, they looked at the metrics and they're like, yeah, that's cool. But um, so you're not going to be our celebrity news editor as well um so i didn't do the oj trial but i did do the michael jackson trial oh yeah um, yeah i was actually in santa barbara for that yeah and it was yeah. out in santa maria i was uh yeah i remember that vividly yeah and yeah and then um and then ended up uh at the chronicle okay and, okay so all the magic happened you were out in uh the i just got the, the pnw um right when like uh washington wines and Oregon wines were starting to gain more recognition outside of the region. Yeah. So um, what, did you used to visit any wineries while you were out there? I mean, what was that kind of? I mean, that's 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 sort of how it started was um, a little less Oregon only because Oregon was a little – was farther along the curve. But yeah. would – I mean, new slash no, a lot of winemakers in Oregon would go there all the time. Um, but really it was Washington and because okay. this was – Sort of at the very, it was, it was kind of at the point of inflection where Washington wine was starting to become a thing, and so we would go out to the Yakima Valley, go out to Walla Walla, uh, a whole lot, you know, and just kind of taste our way around, and you know, slowly got to know the wine community there, and that was me being like, ah, this whole wine thing, like, so I do this, I do this journalism gig, <laughs> and you know, I hang out with winemakers, and how do I, how do I put those together? Yeah, um, so. So it's um, it, and that was really that was sort of the the heyday for for Washington really coming of age. Um, I wish these days that there'd been a little bit more progress. I keep waiting, um, but yeah, it was it was sort of the perfect place to like see a wine region, and it's it's truly something not many people get to see. Like to see a wine region actually sort of start to grow into its own. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Really cool. So let's jump into your your writing because you know, uh, like I said, you you had to find a way. I um, I forget who said it. Someone. Uh, oh, James Altucher, who's this crazy guy. Um, idea sex, like you like like you, you take this, you have this, and then and then you create something. So, um, you have written about so many aspects of food and wine, um, and you know, I during the research, I was reading a bunch of your pieces and you're just so fucking real with it. <laughs> um, so like I said, I not, you know, definitely not the diplomat, <laughs> <laughs> not, you know, keep me far away from the United Nations. Oh, that's so great. Uh, so we were, we were uh, warming up and we were talking, and John was was talking about how he couldn't be a psalm uh, <laughs> because he's just he's just going to tell it like it is. He's <laughs> yeah, keep me away from any ambassador and keep me away from any table. <laughs> it's like so awesome. no no good will come of that. But here's a here's an example for everybody, um, and you guys should really Google him and some of his, uh, read a lot of his stuff. He's got books. We'll talk about at the end. But um, in a story for Punch in 2018. Um, the title was "Why Is the Wine World So Unwoke," and you it, you talk about Anthony Bourdain's death had you reflecting on his work with uh, no reservations. And what you said was, he tore into the safe space that food is supposed to occupy, and found grubby politics and exploitation and abuses of power. Um, and then you go on to write about how the wine industry is is like that. Um, and specifically, you said it's viewed by outsiders as a nice little escapist haven from the real world, has a nearly pathological aversion to its less than perfect side. <laughs> Talk about I, I don't know if that was prophetic in 2018 or if I just had yeah, because no, that, like, like, <laughs> it was before George Floyd, before Black Lives Matter. And, and those were kind of what brought a lot to the fore. People were saying, you know, how unwoke wine is. Um, but uh, yeah, like how like is that a thing? Like is that what journalists do? They like you just see the future, man. Like uh, if we're lucky, I'd say we very rarely do that. But, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, honestly, that that piece just came out of me. I mean, reading everyone sort of have the, this this visceral reaction to to Tony's death, and you know, and I you know just I'm not I'm not big on like putting my morning out on on Twitter and Instagram. Sure, just like, I know. I, I know. get it. You know, everyone wants to find their photo and do their thing. But I'm just right. like, right. you know, again, probably because of like, because of my, my work history, like, I'm like, if I'm writing an obit, I'm writing an obit. But I, you know, I don't need to sort of, you know, write platitudes. Um, and, but I was just sort of, I don't know, so, something sort of clicked. And I, you know, I, I'm always kind of pissed off at the, like, the, the meta culture Sorry, sorry, Mark Zuckerberg um, uh, of wine. Where you know, I mean, there is the the stuff itself is endlessly fascinating, and within the the world of wine, you find people who have like true and earnest and extraordinary reasons for doing what they do. And mm -hmm. it, it's 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 interesting because having spent all this time in California, um, and then going and spending all this time in France, like you you see this extreme dichotomy between the two cultures. And this isn't to sort of pick on one or the other, but, you know, having written about California extensively, um, I think I had sort of 
not been i mean i i was pissed off already um at napa and the 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 the, the wealth that's there and the sort of the the calculated uh, attempts to create their own myths um but i don't think until i really was spending far too much time in like little french villages with you know with 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 men and women who were you know, this, I mean, we're talking about people whose wines, like, you you see them on big lists here in the city, and everyone thinks they're amazing, and, you know, is you know, you go to natural wine bars, and this, and this awesome, and you're just like, you actually go, and you spend, and I'm not talking, like, a week's vacation, I'm talking about, this was, like, my third year, mm-hmm. uh, maybe fourth year of, like, spending, you know, about half the year in France, where you're like, these people are broke, yeah. and we can, we can have all sorts of talks about, you know, what other, other, you know, whatever other inequalities there are in wine, but it's like, you literally go back to the people who are producing the wine and you know even for all the fetishism that you see when you get here uh meaning here meaning the united states you go back to the origin you're like these folks are broke they like you know they they've like managed to get some land maybe it was family land maybe they bought it but like you know they're they're not sitting around like broing down with each other well I mean, they are because they're French, but yeah, but um, it's not. But it's but, not, but, but, but it's, they're. It's not the bro flex money. Rah, rah. Yeah, it's not like <laughs> I'm gonna drink some olive man. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, like they're they're literally, you know, they spend their time in like shitty harvest vans, you know, with holes in the floor, and trying to figure out like where to buy clothes for their kids, how to pay their note to Credit Agricole. Like it's, you know, like it it is truly the. Uh, the substance of the work stripped down, which is why, again, like you go out and you see the money that's behind a lot of sort of that 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 penumbra, that that luxury penumbra of wine. And for me, at least, it pissed me off. And so there's something about, I don't know, like, you know, the Bourdain's death and me just this ambient sort of rage that's 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 <laughs> there about like about the fact that, you know, the, you know, you look at how you look at how fetishized wine has become, and you realize oh my how little trickles back yeah. to the people who are doing the work. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, it's 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 <sighs> yeah. I mean, it's you know, people say, and I talked about this a couple episodes back. Um, you know, if you know people who who were in Napa in the seventies, they'll tell you it's not the same place. You know, um, and that whole industry is predicated on Mexican labor. For sure. It's predicated on, you know? Um, And we don't talk about that. And it's interesting, because in California, at least, I think people do understand that only because, you know, no matter where you are in the ecosystem in California, yeah. you you do understand that oh, yeah. this is how yeah. literally yeah. the entire state runs. Right. But yeah, there's none of that gets transmitted on. Um, and it's, I mean, it's funny because it's hard for me to think of any industry that is as reliant on marketing as wine and simultaneously as bad at it. Oh. Mm. Which is to say... You know, it's the 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 tropes that surround wine are. I mean, it's gotten a little better now, but even so, you're just like, you know, you hear crap that comes out of people's mouths, and you're like, come on, like the the actual story of really well made wine should be compelling, and it's you know, it's it's like this is this is not a hard thing, but then you realize how many people are in the industry for, I won't say nefarious, but like you know, for for very 
for very egoist reasons that 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 when you actually strip down to the story that you should be telling, there's no there there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's 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 inter- it's interesting now. I think you know we're starting to have this conversation in wine. I don't know that it's all directionally going to the right place. I think you still see, you know, you still see you see a lot of indignation, but I don't know that it's necessarily always pointed in the right direction. Right. Correct. But, um, where I was, you know, my my response sort of after writing the unwoke piece, which, you know, would that I could rewrite that headline now. Um, but, you know, we're like officially like, you know, uh, like in the in the vocabulary dustbin. Um, <laughs> but um, but it's it is one of those things where it's like, you know, look, I you know, there are lots of inequalities in the wine industry, which is to say the wine sales industry mm-hmm. in the United States, in New York specifically. But, you know, but for me, I go back to the origin point, and I'm like, just so we're clear, if you actually go to European France, like, there's no great glory here. I mean, Burgundy, finally, like, they're making some money, but these were poor farmers right. for centuries, since, yeah. since since they basically somehow got land from the monks. And so, um, anyway, so it's, it's um, you know, it's it's going to be interesting, because I think, I mean... I don't certainly that wasn't the first piece to kind of throw the grenade, but uh, but I think um, I think it's fascinating to see how you know that conversation about the the re, the reality of wine and the the true inequalities that are there. Like three four years, I think uh, we're going to have really interesting discussions about that. Yeah, yeah. Such as there's like wine media left at that point. You know, it's right. all, all going to be bottle shots on Instagram. Exactly. Or, you know, we're all going to do like wine dances on TikTok. But... Oh, my God. And listen, it's so funny. So like that was my whole black wine. I think it started out making fun of influence. I just took bottle shots like for a year. And I, I was mean, like, and, and I was like, we all still I mean, take bottles. Yeah, I, I mean, we like, do, but but, it, but literally, that I was like, I was like, what the hell is this? I was like, someone was like, yeah, there's a whole wine community on Instagram. I'm like, what is this? Like people are like, and I, you know, I'm, I I I know Gary V says you got to use them all, but I just can't TikTok. I'm just, it's just too much for me. Can't TikTok. I also realized that I was going to have a finite potential as a wine influencer because I do not look good in a two piece. And I don't think I would subject anyone to that. That shit would probably go viral. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably, yeah, you know, you know. Yeah. Wait a minute. <laughs> <It> really? <laughs> we should do our first TikTok together. Yeah. <laughs> okay, um, so I want to go back to something you said earlier. You said that um, wine hasn't done a good job marketing itself. And in that same article, you said, candidly, we've done a really bad job in recent years explaining why our thing is special why it matters and why we spend late nights arguing about its esoterica. What's my proof? I have two words for you. White claw. Boom. Let's talk about this this seltzer shit. <laughs> yeah. I'm never going to get that. I'm never going to get them for a sponsor. Yeah, think, 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 things I wrote shortly before my wife started selling wine spritzers. I know, so. right? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, you know, and it was interesting because that was really sort of the first I think that was the first summer when when White Claw was was, was crushing yeah. it. Yeah. And 
and and my take from looking at the data was like you know we we meaning wine people in general sort of live in this very specific world and we kind of you know at that point we're like everyone was referencing each other everyone wanted to like drink the cool shit and right. you know and i mean there's still quite a lot of that but it was like you know it was it was it was literally this moment where you step back and you're like okay so we all have this and we you know this is our environment and the market has literally moved on to drinking uh you know like malt liquor based seltzer. i was like did it did it move on or did it move back to zima i i, I yeah. fucking white claw zima we didn't fall for that shit in the except 90s. that white claw's doing a whole lot better <laughs> than zima like if I zima know. worked that well we would all be like still holding those ridiculous i bottles. know i know <laughs> that was a sexy bottle yeah um <laughs> So no, I mean it, it. You know, and it's and it's fascinating to see this the 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 sustained market share for it, which is to say that like you know the the fundamentals is the are are that you know the people who are starting to drink now um, want something different, and uh, you know, and White White Claw gave it to them. Um, but whatever it is, I mean, you're seeing now that um, the very sort of form uh, of um, you know, of wines that are sort of marketed to people who would otherwise be drinking White Claw is starting to change. You're finally seeing labels starting to change, thank God. Um, but it's, I know yeah, we, got, we have interactive wine labels now. and Yeah, but it's like, I mean, you know, it, it, but it it is, again, um, this mm. this tricky question of like, you know, is that is that someone having fun? Do they like you know find their friend who's like a great illustrator, or is this you know did a marketing team come up with this? Yeah, mm. um, I just poured and tasted this this red you brought, and again it's it's a small Bordeaux. It's killer, man. Woo! I love these wines. Wow, <laughs> making everyone drink Merlot again. Make make Merlot great again. M M G A. Oh shit. I got an idea. So sell those hats. <laughs> but this is I mean, this is what I was this is what I was saying about Bordeaux is like, you know, it's um again, like, you know, the 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 wine community sort of tends to be an echo chamber and forever people just wouldn't touch it. And it was it was fascinating to me in the sense that like I spent plenty of time railing against cold cabernet, all of this. But at the same time, at some point I stepped back. And I swear, like, I thought Bordeaux was going to be, like, my, you know, uh, my throwaway chapter in in the French book. Mm -hmm. And I ended up going back there three times um, to do reporting because I was just like, there's so much here. And, the, the like, again, to my point of, of inequality and um, – and and really, you know, sort of shortfalls in the wine industry, like Bordeaux captures it because you're literally like, this is not metaphorical, uh, you know, uh, inequality. This is literally like the word that, that, that one of the winemakers who's not in Poyac used is it's futile. It's literally like, you know, ex like literally, like not metaphorical, like the richest people in the world who are – taking all the credit, taking all the glory and screwing over the other 5,700 wineries that are there. Mm. Um, and so, and yet within all that, you still find there's all of these people who are doing extraordinary work. And candidly, in the end, like anyone can mock it, but there's a lot of people in the world who like drinking Cabernet and like drinking Merlot. And when Merlot was Merlot before Sideways, like it had issues, quality, you know, sort of fell off a cliff. But there was a reason that people liked drinking it. 
Oh, uh, Merlot, when it's done right, is it's yeah. a beautiful one. Um, there's a reason that Petrus is still the most expensive Bordeaux. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, um, I don't know. That was, you know, I can't teach me much, but um, but that was my sort of, you know, one great kind of return to form. I was like, you know, this has legitimately been an, o- an oversight on my part. So now I drive everyone crazy and bring Bordeaux everywhere. Yeah, no, that's really cool. Um, I like what you said because you said feudal, and I think you mentioned that in a piece. I mean, that's basically like, oh, man, John's got me talking about something we normally talk about. Um, basically, the Bordeaux classification system is like fucking redistricting for voting. <laughs> You know, that's basically what it, it is. Like, that's what we do here. We do redistricting for votes. Back there, they like... Well, to, to be fair, if the redistricting worked like the 1855 classification, it would suck because it would never change. But at least it would never change. St. Emilion is like modern gerrymandering where you just, you know, redraw it. So, you know, you get one extra uh, Grand Clou cla- uh, Class A, uh, you know, A. Yeah. Um, and somebody sues and somebody sues again. And it's, I mean, that is a that is a damn good... I'm, you know, if that analogy shows up somewhere uh no one ever heard it <laughs> <laughs> you can have that one man yeah. thanks for coming on man. like take it take it you know um, <laughs> but yeah no it's i mean and and you see it it's it, it's it's literally um you, you know you know rich grown men fighting over this ridiculous and- bullshit like who you know and your your wine is your wine, and and it's interesting. So the twenty twenty two classification, um, uh, Oson and Cheval Blanc tapped out of it because they were like, I mean, they you know, reading between the lines, they were basically like, you know, we are who we are, and we've put a lot of hard work into what we do. Uh, they really should and, not worry about it. Well, right, but they're like, we literally like, why are we being judged on our Instagram accounts? Like you, the, the classification mm-hmm. for twenty twenty two, part of it is like your marketing and social media. Shut the and front like, door. Right, and what you're the like, fuck, <laughs> and you know, and, and whatever my other issues. Although like, there's an opportunity for me as a social media expert. So all you know. need to do is buy land and send him. Oh, go. I'm like, hey, I'm here you know. to help. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just Kickstarter it. Exactly. <laughs> That's wow. That's 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 interesting, man. Your book's gonna be incredible. Um, I'm wow. They are real. They're literally taking that into account. Yeah. And then also, like you said, it's growing. Like, uh, which was a chateau um, that sued and finally got classified in '71. Like it, t- it took them to they were they want yeah Mouton Mouton right yeah. yeah. And 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 what's interesting is 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 the hubris that is required for that to have happened. Um, and it was interesting to dig back into sort of the appellation system and and process at that point. But you 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 think about it's, it's funny because you know today they 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 pride themselves in the story that you know you know second they can't be and first they shan't be and it's like who the hell are you you know like you know what like what. Where did you wake up in the morning? Um, you're just again. You're like it's. I mean, you want to talk about about privilege? Like, what kind of privilege is required to literally think that somehow you have been denied this thing from the 1855 classification, which was basically a marketing gimmick to begin with? It was literally done for the univers- uh, Exposition Universal, and they wanted to have sort of a ranking to like impress all the visitors. And somehow this insane like marketing stunt is now with us, you know, 170 years later. Yeah, I mean, and that's, and I mean, God bless Bob Parker. He saw an opportunity. Like, I mean, in America, we score everything. Like, we, we you, if you go to school here, you take tests. It's, we, we like, we're, we're used to scores, right? Like, it's like. I give it four stars. Yeah, exactly. 
I'm on Amazon, you know. <laughs> the co- I didn't like the color of the cover. Oh so, my god, you know. <laughs> I, I love I love reading like the one star review. Yeah. It's like it's like the most bullshit thing most of the time. It has nothing to do with the product. It it's amazing. Like I read one of those, I was like, what the I forgot what it was. I was like, but it was like it has nothing to do with the product. Like it was like they didn't like the color. Like they shipped me the wrong color, one star. <laughs> what the hell just I couldn't back? get the C D to work. <laughs> I think literally there was like there was like for the audio book of one one of my books there was like there was a one star that was like I couldn't get the CD to work. I'm like I I'm truly sorry for your pain. You know. Do you want me to come to your house? I can, you know. Cuz they were trying to put like, the CD into the cassette player. Uh, Grandma, you got to stop hanging out on Amazon. <laughs> So for like with 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 punch, like how do you decide what you're going to write about? Like, what's your process there? Just you just you just like it's it's something bubbling in the skin. You write about it, or just like what what kind of do you go? Yeah, through? I mean, I don't run t- write tons and tons for punch anymore. But yeah, it was it's basically sort of, um, you know, I would throw two or three ideas out at my editor, and we'd sort of figure one, or we'd you know schedule them a lot of it candidly you know punch uh was until recently owned by random house and random house is my publisher and so um this was also completely self-serving in (laughs) um in doing a lot of the actual legwork for the book and getting paid twice for it hey man i'm not mad at you i want to learn from you teach me (laughs) (laughs) to to join the lucrative world of wine writing exactly All right, we're gonna we're gonna take a quick break right there. It's a good point to take a, a pause. Uh, we'll be right back in just a second. Hey everybody, what's up? It's your boy MJ. I know you like podcasts because you're listening to one right now. If you want another one to check out, you will love where the wine takes you. It's Apostle Robles Wine Podcast, hosted by Adam Montiel, and this podcast is all about the wines, winemakers, and stories of Apostle Robles. It's available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to it on their website, PasoWine.com, P-A-S-O-Wine.com. Okay, we're back. So in your bio, I mentioned you've written two very popular books, uh, The New California Wine and The New Wine Rules. Um, The New California Wine uh, Book the wine enthusiast wrote, um, it's a comprehensive look at the vanguard of personalities who are bucking what's expected and boldly redefining California's place in the wine world. So what gave you the idea for the book and what was really the goal of that book? So, the I mean, the idea for it came from, uh, well, quite literally, it came from a piece that I wrote for Sever called The New California Wine. Okay. Um, and like any good author or you know, good writer. I was like, ah, I should take my magazine article and turn it into yeah, a book. Yeah, steal from uh, myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, but to some extent, I mean, that piece also was a catalyst for me to really think about what I had been covering at the Chronicle. That was 2010. Okay. Uh, so I'd been there for about four years. And, um, and so it was, you know, it was me taking a bit of a step back and seeing like I had written, you know, a lot of pieces about what I was trying to find in California. Cause when I got there, you know, I was sort of skeptical of California wine. Not, not cause not, that was, that was, there was a big, the big, uh, s- score seeking yeah. culture. Right. So, yeah. so in the book, what I called it was, was big flavor. 
And, you know, that was the era of Big Flavor. And so that was not my thing. And suddenly I show up and I'm the wine critic at Northern California's largest newspaper. Super, totally not awkward. Um, <laughs> and, but, uh, but I, you know, I, I, legitimately spent a couple of years sort of saying like, you know, where do I find the wines in California that speak to me, that give me, you know, a sense of what's happening here that, you know, that represent a sense of place that sort of go back to the values that to me are really what make wine worth talking about in the first place. And so I started finding these things kind of haphazardly and then wrote the, the, the Sever article and that allowed me to bring them together and then realized that, you know, there was this um, really a movement that was taking place and all of these kind of contemporaneous winemakers uh, who I knew um, were really working to, to, to take back California and to some extent bring it back to where things had been in the 70s, uh, to your point, uh, when it was much more humble. The wines were, you know, much, much different. Um, it was, I mean, I, they were sort of, I mean, if you think about the great wines of the 70s, 60s and 70s, they certainly had Europe as a template, but they also had sunshine and they took, yeah. they took it just far enough. Um, and so suddenly it was like, well, here's this huge, you know, this cohort of uh, of winemakers in California who all have a uh, a vision of kind of taking that and springboarding it forward and not just going and doing what they did, but also thinking about uh, new grapes, thinking about new places, um, really seeing kind of the great maturing of California wine beyond big flavor. Uh, and so that was the book. And it was, I mean, you know, it was not, I mean, it was, it was hard to write. All books are hard to write. Um, but it was... That's why I've written exactly <laughs> yeah. zero. Um, that's why... That's why may, nine, may I humbly suggest... 99.99% of the world has written yeah, zero. To, to never write about French wine, because if you think any other topic in wine is hard, um, you know, except maybe Italy. Like, Italy's even more confusing. Ooh. Yeah. But, um, but so it was... I mean, it's interesting how much the book really did flow. And, you know, I I found sort of the vehicle for telling that story. And honestly, it's one that sort of will come back in the new French wine in terms of it being, you know, a, a little bit travelogue, you know, a good bit reference, um, somewhat thematic, but really kind of trying to place people there because I think that's incredibly important um, in terms of being context contextual. Um, but yeah, so, so it was sort of, it was, um, uh, it was capturing, uh, California at this very specific moment. And it's interesting now because now all of these wines that I wrote about in the book are sort of, they're the lingua franca of, you know, a subsequent generation that like doesn't know who Rob Robert Parker was, doesn't really understand. I mean, they have a vague sense that like California wines used to not be like this, but you know, these are, these have now become the benchmarks. And yet at the time that I the book came out, there was this sense, well, this is all just fringe and nothing's going to change. And this is, you're just writing about sort of, you know, these, these crackpots who, you know, <laughs> who think they're going to, you know, going to do something and they're not. I remember there was a otherwise kind of, you know, positive review. And I think the Minneapolis Star Tribune that said, you know, this is all in great, but, you know, we literally like, you can't find any of these wines in Minnesota. Right. Six months later, almost all of them were distributed. 
Wow. And I'm not going to say that it had anything to do with the book, but it was simply that was the momentum at that point. And we're talking like 2013 for small distributors wherever to suddenly kind of pivot from the California wines that, you know, they felt that they'd had to work with to this new generation. Right, right. Um, something you said was kind of funny. So you come down from Seattle to San Francisco and you don't have a, a, a Napa Sonoma Pal at that point. Well, I actually came from New York. I like I got oh, like oh, a, so I got I got like a year back in New York. Okay. Because uh, my my girlfriend at the time had like taken a job with Jim Cramer, actually bizarrely, um, and so I like I for the second time managed to convince MSNBC to like move me. So I moved back to New York. When we oh, were Cramer, for... the the wah that crazy guy, Mad Money, you Mad Money, yeah. Um, but yeah, um, yeah <clears throat> <Plot> so. <laughs> Um, but then, so yeah, so I'm back in New York. I'm trying to figure out what to do. Um, and yeah, get a call from the Chronicle being like, you want to come do this? And this is a story I don't tell a lot, but, um, you know, things that will definitely never happen to me or probably anyone else, uh, ever again. Um, so I got a call from the Chronicle and then I got a call from food and wine that was also like, oh, you know, we uh, were looking for a new wine editor. Do you, you know, Letty Teague was there at the time. She's like, you know, do you do you have an interest? And so like, so I literally got two job offers within two hours of each other on the same day from the Chronicle and Food and Wine magazine. His life doesn't and, suck. Yeah, and and inevitably because I am a dumbass, uh, decided to take the job all the way across the country for much less money in a failing industry. <laughs> Which you should have known because you were doing internet stuff. Like, right. Exactly. Yeah. I should definitely go from the internet to a newspaper. But, um, <laughs> you know, truly no complaints. The Chronicle was extraordinary. Um, it was foundational for me in terms of my career. Um, but I literally one of my friends who's like, you know, one of my oldest friends in journalism called me and was like, have you, have you looked at the paper? Because like, there's, no, <laughs> there's no ads in here. So I don't know how you think they're going to pay your salary. Like I know it's Hearst, but even Hearst has limited patience for never making any money. Um, and so you know, but to be to be perfectly fair, like you know, the I I knew at the time that working you know working for the Chronicle, running the wine section there, having that platform would be truly important. What I didn't know is how much was going to start happening and had already probably started happening in California. Um, so you know. Um, seemingly stupid decision, probably dumb luck, um, yeah. but you know it, it all worked out. Yeah, no, and and it it really worked out, right? Because this is the Bordeaux talking, by the way. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you were you were doing um, uh, what's that called? Yeah, long distance relationship. That, that's a Bordeaux stopping my <laughs> yeah. thinking. I was like, what? What is that? I don't remember. I used to. Should, do we, those. should we talk about the 2018 Bordeaux vintage and how ripe it was? Oh this, my god! This, which this, is, this which, sucker's probably like 15 percent alcohol. It's 15, which is so funny. I was saying he's like, he's like, he doesn't. He says he doesn't like flavor, but this is like this is bold. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, but you know what? Here's how you know it's Bordeaux. It's got it's just got enough enough doodoo, just enough, enough funk yeah. over to, over the fruit. So it's not just overripe, but it's just got that. It's what I also like about this wine, which is like here is this super cranky, you know, organic, like absolute misanthrope farming like the sands of the lower Medoc. Um, and, you know, this is definitely like, you know, cool kid stuff. Um, and it's 15% Merlot, yeah. just so we're clear. Yeah. <laughs> and, I'm, and I am here for it. 
So um, who were some of those uh, winemakers that um, that have become the new guard or have become the, the mentors to the new guard that, that you wrote about in that book? Yeah. See, I successfully deflected you from talking about my relationship. Don't worry. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get there. He, th- he thinks he has. But I did go to law school. Yeah. I'm going to get you. I'm going to yeah. back you into a corner yeah. just so you know. Redirect. Yeah. I'm not like Denzel in uh, Training Day. This shit is just not checkers. Yeah. <laughs> so, so like who – like like uh, like I, I would have to so, say like Arno Roberts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, thinking about the people who are kind of major – major figures. Arnott Roberts, absolutely. Um, And it's interesting because both of them had such a really deep kind of knowledge and informal education into the, like the the culture of that old California. Scolium Project, which is its that own sui generis. He's, he's insane. Yeah. He's a nut, um, but in a good way. But, but you know, you want to talk about great copy. Um, but, um, you know, who else? Literai. I mean, Ted Lemon is on the cover of the book, and, and Ted is sort of this, you know, wild – he's like the Gandalf. Um, <laughs> and he's amazing. Um, you know, Tegan Pasolacqua at Sandlands, um, who for sure – and Anna Turley, who, you know, I think is probably more than anyone the hero of that book just because Tegan is such a – ridiculously thoughtful view of the world and just, you know, whenever you're thinking about something, he's like 20 steps ahead um, and yet is able to do that in this remarkably humble way um, with great, great sort of love and respect for the terroir that's there, even if it's like Contra Costa County and we're, you know, ducking the meth heads to go look at Zinfandel. Um, but, um, you know, Morgan Twain Peterson at Bedrock for mm-hmm. sure, who, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I made Morgan and Tegan co-winemakers of the year the same year because they have this remarkably similar view about sort of the the long history of California and the through line uh, and understanding the historic value of it. Um, and then, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, Domaine de la Cote um, down in Santa Barbara, but also like a tribute to Grace, Angela Osborne. It's funny, Angela was one of those people who like – I, she was an assistant winemaker for a, a winery up in Sonoma, and, you know, she... She makes killer Grenache, man. Right? So, but she was, like, I, you know, who's this, like, you know, Kiwi girl's doing her thing. She, like, puts a bottle of her wine in my hand, and, you know, it's everyone... Everyone wants me to taste their wine. Um, but, you know, so I was just like, okay, cool, thanks. You know, promptly, you know, sort of forgot about it for four or five months, and then, like, opened it, and I was like, holy shit. I was like, this... This is this 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 woman is a genius. Like she is a maestro. It's and I was like, I get it. Like this is pure Grenache. It's whole cluster. Like she's got Chateau Rayas on the brain. Like I get it. Mm-hmm. And this was her 07, which was her first vintage, I think. Um, and so like you know, reached out to her and whatever. Wrote about it a number of times. And it's really interesting now. Like I'm insanely happy to see the attention that she's finally getting Mm -hmm. um because it's you know again like it's not not pinot noir it's not cabernet it's like not like a super easy story Mm -hmm. but um it was just one of the it was one of those rare moments where i was like maybe i actually am not so bad at this thing i'm doing (laughs) um because i think this wine is insanely good and no one's telling me otherwise and now you know now you see like she's finally getting um really sort of long due attention uh, for her wines and um, and that's 
extraordinary because you're like, all right, well, this is pe- people people get it now. Um, so I'm trying to think who else. I mean, there's you know Dan Petrosky at Massacon who we talked about. Yep, yep. Um, who it's funny, you know, Dan Dan has taken a long time to like. I think you know. To, also to, a Columbia guy like you. He, it, I swear to God, I. I'm sure that I saw him because he graduated the year after me. I'm sure mm-hmm. I saw him when we were there. And I literally found out about what he was doing because I read the alumni magazine. They're like, Dan Petrosky, <laughs> uh, you know, awesome. winemaker out in Napa. And I was like, how is there this dude who clearly I went to school with who I – who's like doing something in Napa that I have no idea about. And so reached, that, that that's what – like landed him the first story in the Chronicle yeah. uh, in I think 09. Um, but it was interesting at that time he was like very hesitant to really um, talk that much about the scope of what he was doing because, you know, he was making these like big cold Cabernet yeah, by for day. A, uh, for lark, yeah, for yeah. lark mead. By day, um, yeah. And then doing his like crazy Italian white wines by night. Um, and I saw him, we saw him for lunch a few weeks ago and uh, and we were sort of laughing about, you know, he um, he is one of the only people to make wines that like me and Robert Parker and Antonio Galloni all have like, all really liked. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I was like, you know, I you have you have you have managed the hat trick. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I think it's also interesting that um, you you had um, uh, Morgan Twain Peterson and. Tegan Pasolacqua as your co-wine group. I mean, he has this whole sandwich, but his day job, I mean, they work with Zinfandel, which was, we thought was the only American variety, blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, Zinfandel got big in the 90s and the aughts. Through Turley. Yeah, through Turley. Which is truly what's fascinating because you um, – you taste the wines that he's now making for Turley. I mean, and, and you know, there's, I mean, there is extraordinary quality, even like the old, the original Helen Turley wines, um, you know, when she was the first winemaker, like, you know, the sheer quality of the vineyards that Larry and right. that she picked out um, have proved themselves over times. And you go back and you can, you know, taste the hay and petite Syrah from like 95. <laughs> and you're like, all right, this may, may be 16, 17% alcohol, Shit's but, good. you know. She knew what she was doing. Yeah. It um, works to this day. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Um, but it is hilarious now to taste the Turley wines um, that Tegan makes because he has managed to take this iconic brand these iconic sites and make exactly the wines that he wants to make from them um, that are not small, but like Zinfandel is a sugar machine. Like, you know, but yeah, like you look at the, the the acid chemistry and the pH on them and you're like, this is, you know, this has more acid than like Burgundy in a cold vintage. Um, but he has managed to completely transform it and they have not in any way lost their legacy customers because – you know, I think he's just that damn good. Mm. Like, you know, he's still making wines that are, to be perfectly fair, like, you know, he's got to please his boss more than anyone yeah, else. Yeah, I mean, they and, still come in at 14.5, well, some 15s, but... Larry Turley also is a big fan of big red wine. Yeah. So, you know... He's like, a big dude. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're going to... Whatever you choose to do as Larry's winemaker... You know, if he's gonna, if he's unhappy with you, you do not have good job security. Well, so yeah, I mean that's it's, right. Um, so you know, so, so so somehow Tegan has managed to like make wines that please him, make wines that please you know, sort of weird, you know, nerdy acid 
head people like me. Um, and, you know, and, and rather importantly, like still please all the people who've loved Turley throughout the years. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, I mean, I, again, like I said, I think it's, it's testament to his extraordinary talent, but it's also uh, just this remarkable threading of the needle where it's like, this is why people always love Zinfandel and why they, they still do. When I, it's so, whenever, I don't drink enough Zin, but like whenever I have like a, a good dry creek Zin, you're like, fuck, that's why Zin, like you just, the, the dusty tea, like this is why Zin, and the acid is great. It's like, you're like, oh my God, Zinfandel is so fucking good. Like when it's done right. Um, and in addition to being like this maestro of wines, he's a universal life minister. Uh, <laughs> That's my fault. That is my fault. Um, yeah. He, um, I was like, you know, who's the most ministerial person I can imagine in, in my life uh, when we were planning our wedding? And, you know, he was game. So, yeah, he uh, uh, he graciously, like, you know, um, went through the extraordinary ministry of signing up online. Yeah, it was so <laughs> rigorous. <clears throat> um and 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 he married you and your uh, married you and your wife Valerie. Yeah, and you guys had an interesting relationship because she was she was uh, on the East Coast and you were on the West Coast. Yeah. Um, and what could go wrong? I, what could go wrong? I mean, but like, okay, man, I did my research. So I read I read your the article in New York Times. It was, it was like it's a love story, right? It's and I love love. Story. I'm a cancer, so I'm, I'm, I love love story. So. Um, you two both had been like had like rough dating stuff, and uh, how'd you meet again? Like, how'd you guys meet? How'd so you... we, I, I don't even remember exactly what was in the the vows piece and what wasn't. So we met at a. Well, we technically met when she was out uh, on the Terry Thies tour. Right, because uh, she was her, she was uh, ran that she was she was in charge of yeah, yeah she was in charge of selling that portfolio nationwide, um, and so she was out in San Francisco um, where we like I wouldn't say connected but like where we actually got some time to talk with each other was at a Thai restaurant called uh, Lairs Ross which is in uh, on Larkin Street in the Tenderloin and. Um, some of the best Thai food in the in the country, but also importantly, it's BYO. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> it's all, for for wine people, and it's so, always about the BYO. Yeah, and so it was one of like two places in San Francisco where we would do all of our wine dinners. And that that night, like me and Jasmine Hirsch had arranged a dinner for all of um, all of the Thies producers. And so um, so Val was sitting across from me, and I chatted with her, and I like you know thought she was super interesting. You know, you to be. Um, you know, there's a finite number of very attractive, insanely smart women in wine. Um, you know, I'm sure many more now than in, you know, 2012. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, you you take notice. Yeah. Um, at that point, I just took, took sort of intellectual notice because I was literally uh, six weeks away from getting married. Um, that did not quite uh, come together. Uh, my fiancé... Uh, had other thoughts um, and uh, super not awkward because we worked together in the same office eight feet apart, you know, <laughs> not a problem at all. Um, it's fine. She's, I, 
adore her. She's she's doing great. But um, but um, anyway, so yeah, that that sort of fell apart, and then. Uh, Val was actually back. We, we still dis- debate whether she came back that October. I think she did. And it was June originally. But then she definitely was back in San Francisco in January because that's when the winter tour mm-hmm. comes through. Um, I may have lingered at her table a little bit longer <laughs> than I should have. Um, she, uh, she still claims she's like, what? What the fuck is this guy doing? Like, he, like, he's like, like, he's like, he's like, he's like, he's like, he's like he, he knows that I have like other things to do. Like I have other people to talk to. Right. Uh, <laughs> I can't just like sit here and like, you know, make small talk with him. Um, but anyway, so, so I finally like was corks, huh? Yeah. Exactly. Did, did you prefer yeah. a waiter's corkscrew yeah. or a uh, asso? Yeah. 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 I was like, you know, this, this straight laser, tell me more about the Uxla. <laughs> tell me all about the Uxla. <laughs> Um, and so, so finally I was like, Hey, you know, we were chatting and I was like, yeah, you know, I, I come to New York a fair amount, you know, I'm from there and I've got to be there, um, you know, uh, in March to do my taxes, not actually bullshit. Like that was my annual pilgrimage, like go see my accountant. Um, and you know, gave me your card, whatever, forgot about it. And I actually reached, reached, I mean, this is, this is in the story. <laughs> like she gave you a card and like you taped in the refrigerator on the counter, like in swingers, like don't call yeah. her for seven the, days. The funny, the funny thing is I like, you know, I like took notice and then, you know, promptly got distracted, uh, and you know, um, was just doing my thing. And then when I was actually planning my trip, I was like, all right, who do I want to see in New York? I was like, oh yeah, that's, uh, um, and so sent her an email and I think this is in the, in the, in the, in the story, like sent her an email and was like, Hey, I actually am coming to New York. Would love to have a drink. And you know, it's like, I got a couple options and I swear to, to God, this, this was true. This is true. Uh, I was like, you know, we could just grab a, you know, I'd like have dinner with my, uh, sister and brother-in-law and we could like grab a drink after that one night or thir- you know Thursday night um, I managed to score this reservation at Momofuku Co. He's like I got the hottest reservation <laughs> in town. Exactly. <laughs> and you know if you want to go that would be you cool. Know, yeah. That would be alright. It's on you. you know, yeah. I'm, I'm going to go. Yeah. <laughs> and legitimately at that point I, I did have it. I was like dumb luck and I was like alright well how you know I totally didn't plan to actually do this so um, and so she pulled everyone in the Skernick office uh, she was like, is this a date? Is this not? What's going on? And they were like, well, it's clearly a date. Um, and so she, you know, she like, she's like, yeah, drinks are cool. And, you know, let's, let's, you know, Coke would be fun. Let's, let's see. And um, so we, we had drinks. We had a, that was a long date. We had like four or five places. We, we met at Anfora. We went to Terroir. And we went to a place called The Beagle, which is closed now, which is like specialized in cherry. Then we went back to Terroir. Um, boy, like Paul Rico making six, love connections. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and then I mean, like we clicked right away, and that was that. And then we had um, that was I guess that was Wednesday night. Uh, and then the next night was Co. She was obviously at that point. She's like, yeah, I'm in for Co. But not before I had to stop at some crappy bistro on Avenue A and like you know, get the, you know, like, oh, I just, you know, I'm having drinks with my friends. You should come by and meet them. I was like, mm. <laughs> oh, girl. Yeah, it was like, it was yeah. like, she's like, well, I had this out, but I got it. Now I got to yeah. go. Yeah, I know. the I know the drill. Um, yeah. And so, you know, got, got, got the scrutiny seemed to have passed. Um, all of her friends were hung over. So that probably that helps. Um, and yeah. And so we, we had three dates and five nights and, and that was that. And we, you know, just 
All we had to do was spend the next three and a half years on airplanes. Yeah. And then you get married by Tegan Pasolacqua in one of the Bedrock Vineyards, right? In the Bedrock Vineyard, yeah. In the in the old parcel, yeah. And the book was already written by then, right? Yeah. Everything. Oh, okay. So I, I, I forget if there's actually photos of this or not, but um, <laughs> because Tegan is Tegan, he actually was holding a copy of the New California Wine, which he had sort of the, oh, the Bible. Inside. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thou shalt marry someone who is hot and wine knowledgeable. <laughs> who has a deep collection of Riesling. <laughs> That's such a great story, man. That is such an awesome story. Um, so let's talk about the new wine rules. Yeah. Be- because Book Riot said, Bonet would like you to know that maybe it's okay and not scary to put down that trusty safe glass of Moscato or Chardonnay and try something new. So what was the inspiration behind the new wine rules? So um, so I had already signed the contract for the new French wine. I was already, okay. I don't know, a couple of years into reporting it. And, you know, this is why I married her. Uh, so, so Val and I were having um, lunch at Slanted Door in San Francisco. Um, and we were sort of eavesdropping on this table next to us that was like, Six women, you know, maybe late 20s, early 30s, mm-hmm. all professional. This is like the financial district. So, like, they're all, you know, they're able to have, like, a lunch at Slanted Door. They're doing fine. Yeah. Um, and you could hear that, like, you know, the waiter kept by coming by asking about wine. And they were, like, interested. But they just, like, you know, their server didn't have the ability to, like, help guide them. They felt like they weren't confident enough to, you know, to sort of, you know, provide you know, enough information to make a, an informed choice or whatever. We're just like, we're like, this is ridiculous. This is literally who is going to be the future of the wine industry for the next 30 years. And like, why is this happening? Why, why is anyone in this position? And so we just started talking about how we felt like all of the sort of basic wine books that are out there, you know, felt like they were about 20 years out of date. Um, there was nothing that was really meeting the wine industry where it was in, I think that was 2017. And so we just sort of started having this conversation. Then I had this conversation again with the head of, uh, 10 speed, um, and just saying like, you know, like, why is there no book like this? You know, there's, I mean, you know, there's things like the wine Bible, if you want to go through Mm -hmm. whatever, 600 pages. Um, but like, if you, you know, if you're just like, you know, I, I want something that, you know, gives me two hours worth, like, you know, give me what I need. Um, and so, you know, I sort of decided to take it as a challenge of like, can I figure out how to do a basic wine book that feels like it actually belongs in the late 2010s, uh, that doesn't patronize people, um, that is willing to sort of accept the, you know, this new wisdom about, um, about, you know, relative quality and, you know, orange wine and rosé and, um, you know, sort of the, 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 the wiring of like my wine brain, but in a way that's not so completely um, incomprehensible, um, <laughs> including for me. Um, and so I think we, you know, we, I mean, I, I, 
you know, I liked the, I looked at other books that sort of worked on similar lines. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a book actually called 101 Things uh, You Learn at Culinary School. And I was like, you know, it's totally feasible to do a basic book that doesn't feel uh, moronic, that doesn't mm-hmm. feel like it's it's dumbed down and it's sort of talking down to its subjects. Um, and how do we do that with wine? How do we sort of, you know, just strip everything away and talk about um, just the 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 process of living a wine life you know like i don't need to tell you what sauvignon blanc is and then literally like the benchmark oh for what God. the benchmark for what went into the book was like if you can google it for the most part uh i'm not putting it in uh and just yeah. i'm like that's again like you know like i, I don't that. i don't i don't need to duplicate you know the completely freaking obvious right um but and i'm i'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say it <laughs> About every influence, like Malbec, a great blah 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 blah. blah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, so it was it was that, and then you know we knew we wanted it to be visual. We knew we wanted it to be kind of compact, and um, it was actually really very easy to write. Um, it was the planning for it. I mean, it was basically storyboarding it out beforehand. Um, but I think it was you know seventeen thousand words, um, which. You know, for me, is like a single article. <laughs> um, I'm like blown away because I'm like, I'm like, shit. How do you write a fucking book? I'm like, I just can't do it. I'm just too ADD. I like, I'm like, I'm, I'm. That's so great, man. That like you can conceptualize and then storyboard it out. Um, like, and I love that concept because I do IG lives, and even when I interview people here on the podcast, I'm like. I don't want to talk about – you can read the fucking tech sheet. So, like, why do I need to go into, like, the cooperage and this and that and rootstock and blah, 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 you know? Um, so I, when you were saying I was like, like, before you wrote your first book, like, what, like how, who has the gumption? Like, I'm going to write a book. Like, like you, you just go, I'm going to write a book about that. So it's funny. I – before the New California stuff, like, even before the Severe article – um, I had this crazy notion <laughs> that I was going to write a book about natural wine. Ooh. And remember, in like 2008, 2009, natural wine was not what natural wine is now. Like nobody really knew what natural wine was. Like the the Muscadet, like that would have been considered like a classic natural wine because it was, you know, indigenous mm-hmm. fermentations. Mm-hmm. And um, – but I wanted to talk about how, you know, there was this movement, little did I know, um, <laughs> there was this movement that was changing wine and it was, you know, it was going to become a big deal. And, you know, so I wrote a full proposal for it, uh, probably 45 pages, um, and had an agent who was not terribly good. It was like, yeah, you know, write your, write your proposal and like, I'll shop it around and see. It's, it's, to be fair, it's how a lot of, a lot of literary agents are. They're like, you know, uh, you know, let me lift my pinky and I'll take 15%. Um, so that went approximately nowhere. And I sort of, you know, I grew a little tired of the book. I moved on and other stuff was going on in my life. And, sort of forgot about it. Probably mercifully, I don't think I would want to be the guy who wrote like a book about natural wine in 2009. Um, but um, but among other things, that also sent me um, to uh, some folks I knew in publishing and was like, do you have a recommendation for a good agent? Because I would really like <laughs> one. Um, so it was literally like, you know, getting connected with uh, my friend Kitty, who's 
been my agent now for a long time, but is also a good friend, um, but is also very proactive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I mean, like, how do you write a book? You find someone who's willing to, you know, prod you into writing a proposal and then mm-hmm. we'll take it and, you know, get you some money for it. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, I, I'm constantly mystified, you know, it's, I, like I've somehow managed over the years to find three books worth to write about. Mm-hmm. Um, and after France, I don't know that I like wanted to do another one. But it's like, I right, do the new German one. You should do the new Australian. I'm like, I'm going to do the new nothing. Cause I'm, <laughs> you know, I like, you know, I find, I mean, we've cut it down, but like when I turned in the first draft, for new French wine, it was five hundred and ten thousand words. Um, and so after that, I'm like, you know, mic drop, I'm done. <laughs> um, so you know, it's um, but you do. I mean, I I constantly struggle. You know, whether it's my books, whether it's other books. Um, you know, when I've judged the the Beard uh, Book Awards, mm-hmm. you know, this 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 fundamental question of like what what should a wine book be? What, what value is there? Cause you're like, I mean, and this is probably again, you know, I'm now, I, my, my credentials as an old man are now well established <laughs> on this podcast. Um, but I look at, you know, I'm like, all right. So, you know, I came up like just literally reading the Oxford companion to wine, like entry after entry mm-hmm. and a, you know, a handful of other things, but like it was sort of a staunch traditionalist and like, you know, sort of the doing, doing the not fun part of wine reading. And now, you know, when I look at a wine book, I'm like, what, what is the purpose of this book? Like, what is yeah. it? What is it? Um, what is it actually trying to share? Because ultimately, I mean, people want to be entertained, but um, they're reading about wine because they want to know about wine. Right. And um, you know, there's been wine memoirs that have come out that I'm just like, I don't, you know, whose whose life in wine is interesting enough to deserve a memoir? And there's you know a handful. Hugh Johnson's memoir was super interesting because, yeah. um, you know, he'd been doing stuff for 50 years yeah. at that point. But you're like, um, you see a lot and you're like, I don't, you know, like, I don't know who told blind people that they're interesting. Right. <laughs> but we're not interesting. Like, we're we're truly not interesting people. We like, we sit around and we talk about freaking crushed grapes and, you know, and like glassware, you know. <laughs> And if anyone thinks that's interesting, like I, they're <laughs> serious reality check. <laughs> oh my god! So um, five hundred and ten thousand words on the new French wine. Yeah, and early in the podcast, less than that now. Yeah, in case yeah. my editor's listening, I yeah. swear. Um, <laughs> and then we talked. You mentioned that um, you had to revisit Bordeaux a lot. So. Um, uh, Shit, this this wine is big. Did I ask you what the inspiration? No, I didn't. Ask. So, what was the inspiration for that book, the new French wine? What what prompted you to? to, to the inspiration for that was a whole lot simpler. Um, so, I had written New California, and I was sort of like fumping around trying to figure out, you know, what should I do next? I had this thing for like the new old world, um, <laughs> and which was like, which was like. You know, it's funny because then Alan Richmond literally, I think, wrote a piece with exactly that title for Esquire, um, which was definitely not the approach that I would have taken. But I was like, I get it, you Mm -hmm. know. Um, But, you know, conceptually, that was sort of in the right place. And then I was literally like at a wine, like a natural wine bar in Oakland with my editor, Emily, um, just, you know, relatively drunk on Gamay. And she's like, what about France? And I'm like, sure, let's do that. (laughs) 
Um, so moral of the story, like never agree to a book proposal when you're drunk on gamma. <laughs> well, I've, I mean, which is, you know, makes me safe. Cause it means I'll never write another book. proposal. I don't know, man. You're like, you like <laughs> when the fast and furious came out, do you think there'd be like fucking 10 of those? Right. Like, I mean, like you have a franchise here. Vin, Di- Vin, Vin, Vin Diesel's new... like, put me out of my misery. Exactly. <laughs> you're like the new Spanish wine. <laughs> you are literally, <laughs> you literally <laughs> have a franchise. <laughs> Um, so, in your research for that book, besides Bordeaux, what was what were some of your most interesting finds in France uh, for you? So, um, like I said, Muscadet, and that that truly was like I mean, these were not totally haphazard. Um, in that, you know, I, I knew I liked Muscadet. I knew I liked sort of the the quality changes there. Um, and then I got to the city of Nantes, which is like. You know, it's not small, but it's kind of a second-rank French city, you know, out near the Atlantic at the end of the Loire. And I was blown away. And it's, it's, it's like Francis Seattle. It's young. It's a tech city. Like, you know, they have free bike share. They have, like, you know, public art everywhere. Um, all of these young chefs who, like, you know, decided they didn't want to pay Paris rents mm-hmm. uh, opened up uh, neo-bistros there. So there's this insane kind of like young, mm. like well-funded culture there. And they're all supporting the hell out of the local wine, which is Muscadet. And at the same time, like Muscadet producers are like, well, we're tired of being crappy white wine that's like, you know, you know, four euros a bottle. We want to show that there's better terroir here. And so, like I said, they they built the crew coming no, which is this this system of ten crews. Um, they really, really sort of changed winemaking. Just went on a a, a dramatic quality shift. Uh, and so, like all in all, blew me away. I was like, I didn't legitimately didn't expect this culture in France. Um, you know, Beaujolais is awesome. I, I don't know that anything was un, unexpected, but it is truly a joy to see the, the, the again, the quality revolution there. Um, you know, Champagne is truly impressive, but, you know, it, that was much more as like a matter of fact business, uh, a visit. Um, like I said, Bordeaux blew me away. Um, the Roussillon blew me away. Um, and actually sort of the whole Southwest, like not, not all of it, but like, um, but... Um, seeing what was happening in Gaillac, seeing what was happening up in the mountains in the Aveyron. Um, and this was a region that, again, that I was like, I am literally just going to breeze through it, do the absolute bare minimum, and move on. And I was just stunned at how much great wine is coming out of there. And, you know, and it's truly fascinating because the history of the Southwest is directly linked to Bordeaux. And again, speaking about, you know, the sense of entitlement, um, it was, it is, it is not metaphorically, it is literally called the privilege of Bordeaux. And for about six centuries, the Bordelais had shipping rights over anything that was upriver and they could block literally any wine that could be Caor, that could be anywhere like in the Marmonday, moving into the Southwest, they could block it from being shipped downriver through the port and, uh, before Christmas. So obviously Christmas, winter, wow. the ports closed. So the Bordelais had essentially a three-month advantage to sell their wine to England, the Netherlands, everywhere that would ship out of um, – uh, out of the Gironde. And so like the major wine trade in France, the Bordeaux, the Bordelais, like, again, like not metaphorically, like just blocked everyone else from trade. And they had, I mean, even when it was, uh, when it was Aquitaine, when it was part of uh, England, it was a right granted by the crown. 
um, to that the Bordelais were able to um, essentially sort of skip paying taxes and could block upriver trade. And so, um, you know, this is not to say the Southwest didn't have other issues, but um, one of the reasons that there's so much wine in the Southwest that truly has just never gotten attention, say Bergerac, um, which, you know, it's it's never going to be like, you know, the best Margot, but there's unbelievably good wine in Bergerac that, you know, shows up in the U.S. for under $10 a bottle. So you can imagine when it's leaving uh, the the properties at. Um, but it's just the, you know, um, and that's an interesting one because the, the soils are so similar to Centimillion. But it's like it just, you know, it's 600 years of oppression by the Bordelais trade. John Bonet espousing critical wine theory here on the Black Wine Guy podcast. <laughs> That's going to catch on. I guarantee you that fucking catch, that one's going to take off. Just don't send me to Virginia. <laughs> so um, what about the Languedoc uh, really impressed you? Because I, I, I like Languedoc Roussillon wines. I like a lot of Rhone stuff. What, what was it? So so was Languedoc it and Roussillon, I very willfully split for the book. Okay. Um, to me, they're two totally different tales. Okay. Roussillon is like – its own tale. They, um, it's somewhat different grapes. Okay. Um, See, know, I'm here to learn. It's, it's much more. It is a very distinctly Catalan influence there. Okay. I mean, it's, it's literally called Catalonia No. Okay. So, um, and so they, you know, I won't say they think of themselves in Spanish. Oh, I've but, seen some of the like Cote de Catalan. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so, so, so yeah. the IGP there is Cote Catalan. Yeah, yeah okay. exactly. So, like, they view themselves as Catalonia, and so it's Macabeo. Um, there's Grenache, wow. uh, which was from the history of, of sweet winemaking or fortified winemaking. Um, you know, there's Carignan, but it's like the, the, the style of wine in the Roussillon is very much about like mineral, fresh, mm-hmm. like knowing that you're in the South and trying to find freshness there. Whereas the Languedoc went through this whole other trajectory where like they thought they were going to be the California of France mm-hmm. and all of these folks wanted to come in and like make, you know, cult wines out of Carignan yeah. uh, and put 200% new oak on it. And so, you know, there is extraordinarily interesting wine in the Languedoc, but the Languedoc, A, has this problem of sort of being told that it was going to be the next big thing in the 90s, which um, did not end well. Yeah. It's- uh, <laughs> um, but also, if you look at the deeper history, and this is actually the sort of substance of the Languedoc chapter, um, which starts with me, like, trying to escape the Gilet Jaune uh, before dawn one morning in Bézier, uh, which is one of the, like, most insanely right-wing racist cities in France. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the, the city where the, the mayor um, tried to do a you – can't, you can't actually do censuses by race in France. So the mayor decided that he was going to do a census of every child in Bézier schools by their first name. It's pretty slick. Yeah. That's slick. So are you Jean-Francois or are you Mohammed? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, yeah so, yeah. Oh. Um, wow. and so anyway, so it starts with me like getting the hell out of Bézier before dawn because I know that like shit's going to go down. <laughs> um, but um, but it ties back to – so that actually – Bézier is also the site of where riots were in 1907 over the growers in the Languedoc feeling like basically like – the government price supports weren't enough to keep them in business, even though the market had fallen out of bulk wine. And so there's this 100-plus-year history mm. in the Languedoc of, um, in a very different way of them feeling that um, the French people and the French government should um, provide a life for them because they make, you know, real table wine that people drink. And um, 
you know, and so all of the, you know, the, the Eno terrorism stories that would come out and, you know, people like opening Spanish tankers, all of that was in the Languedoc because there's this long history of um, really co-ops there um, believing that, you know, they should be given the right to make wine no matter what. Damn. That's uh, I'm have to, yeah. So I, it's it's. I mean, yeah. The Languedoc ended up being interesting because it's just there's this. It's sort of a crazy mix of left wing and right wing. Like mm. there is a lot of right wing sort of conservatism there. At the same time, like it was traditionally one of the strongholds of like far left socialism and communism because again like the co-ops were there and the the idea was like it doesn't matter if you're a crappy farmer doesn't matter if <laughs> no one wants your wine doesn't matter what you grow doesn't matter what the quality is like you know you're a you're a paysan and you should have the right to you know farm your land and have you know somehow the government support you for this mm. i mean wine is so fascinating that way like you can't you don't have history uh, wine wine is it's 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 uh, it's our history in a bottle you know it's it's a it's a world's history yeah i mean it's it's damn that's fascinating okay i want a signed copy of that book we can make that happen all right cool very cool very cool so you you said earlier like you know you grew up you know you grew up and dad had the catering company and the food and wine and blah blah, blah. and you said you really didn't have an aha moment but was there was there one bottle of wine that hooked you? I mean, that that's sort of what I mean by there not being an aha moment is, yeah. um, you know, there have been some extraordinary bottles of wine, but I wouldn't say. All right. I'll, um, I'll give you a better question. Uh, I'll, I'll put it this way. My curiosity has been a bit of a continuum. So, like, there are moments that I'm like, that's amazing. But there's also moments even when I'm like, yeah, that's not amazing. But, you know, but, but, you know. I'm always looking for things that are. Favorite bottle of wine you've shared with your wife? Hmm. Uh, this is not a... This is for sure not the absolute one, yeah. but um, but recently, and we... We all, it was not just her, it was our, our friend O.C. who lives in London who was um, visiting Paris. We were all in Paris and um, drinking, we were on our fourth or fifth bottle of champagne, not going to lie. Um, and the the place that we were at is a, sort of an amazing kind of wine bar, wine store called 228 Liters uh, up in Pigalle. And um, one of the proprietors opened a bottle of um, uh, Savoie wine, so that's mm -hmm. Mondo's, um, from a producer named Michelle Grizard, who's now retired um but it's a saint christophe and this is like this was the wine that like convinced everyone in the savoie that they could make really serious wine it was a 2014 which i'm not sure if that was his last vintage or second to last but it was epic and you're just like you know this this is why i do what i do mm. here's this this wine that like is rubyish is deep is structured but you know, somehow like, like weightless. It's all the things that like, mm -hmm. you know, all the, the freaking speeches about Burgundy, like mm -hmm. it was all happening. And it's like, here's three of us who are all four of us um, who are all jaded wine professionals. And we all just had this moment of like, God damn it. Like, this is why we do what we do. Yeah. 
Um, you know, it's like you realize that there are just moments of transcendence that you cannot predict. And that's why to be perfectly fair when I see, you know, I'm never going to turn down an invitation to like a vertical of Roman A content if anyone's listening. Um, But, you know, you're like, I I understand like if you've got the money and the will, like you can brute force your way to seeing, you know, seeing transcendent beauty in wine. But to me, it's, it's finding those moments that you have literally no idea that it's coming, that it's just around the bend. Oh my God, John. Thank you so much for uh, coming here tonight. and This is awesome. Sharing. Thank you so much. Oh, this is so much fun. We'll have to do it again sometime. Um, uh, tell people where they can find you, how they can be a part of what you're doing, find your next book. Sure. Um, you know. Wouldn't wouldn't be uh, right if I didn't plug resi.com, uh, where there's not there's occasional wine stuff for me, but also sort of all the things I do for my day job and all, all of our terrific writers um, still find me occasionally on punch uh, punchdrink.com. Take a sip of water. Um, and, um, you know, <clears throat> sorry, um, if you want um if you want to find the books, um, johnbonet.com or, you know, Amazon, local bookseller, um, all the places that find books are sold. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. And until uh, next time, cheers to the Mavericks, the philosophers, the deep thinkers, and all your wine drinkers. It's MJ, your boy. Peace. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list. 